0: All right, we are got a lot of stuff to cover because what where we come to in Revelation? As we move through, we're gonna what John is going to see is going to shift our direction a little bit. So, if you will, we're gonna pick back up in in Revelation eleven. And I'm going to move very briefly just so we can at least touch on it here at the end of Revelation 11, but we're going to spend the bulk of the night in Revelation chapter 12, which is a remarkable passage of Scripture that is going, uh, as one, um, one commentator labeled it, it is an apocalyptic version of, of uh, the nativity. And you'll see what I mean when we, when we get there and why it's so important. But before we're there, uh, Revelation 11, where we left off last time, is with uh, the, the two witnesses and their ministry upon the earth. It says in verse 14, the second woe is past. The, that means the, the, if you'll remember, the second woe is the second of the three final trumpet judgments. There's seven trumpet judgments. The second woe would be ju- would trumpet six. Then it says this, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who, who are, who were, because you have begun, to, you have taken your great power and have begun to reign And the nations were enraged, your wrath came, the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So here's what happens. The seventh trumpet blasts and when the seventh trumpet blasts, John proceeds to hear uh, loud voices in heaven uh, offering a cry of praise. And in this cry of praise, uh, what, what I would throw to you tonight, and the more I dig into Revelation, the more, uh, the more I um, begin to fall to the side. If, if you come to Revelation and, and think, well, once we start in chapter four, where John says, and after these things and we go through chapter 22, everything that we see is just in perfect chronological order. I don't think that's actually the case. I think there's sequences of things in chronological order, and there's some things that you get different ones. The reason I say that is, uh, listen to the cry of praise. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Well, that hadn't happened yet. Certainly not going to happen in the next several chapters of the book. That doesn't happen until you get to chapter 19 and 20. Uh, not only that, uh, he will reign forever and ever. Uh, this says, we give thanks because the nations were enraged, past tense, your wrath has come. The dead were judged, the righteous were rewarded. Those who destroy the earth, which uh, would be pointing forward to Satan and the, the beast of the sea, the beast of the land, the harlot, the great Babylon, uh, those who destroy the earth, they were destroyed. Well, those things haven't happened yet yet. Those things happen in chapters 19, 20, 19 and 20. So I'm telling you to say this the seventh judgment is is ushers in. We already know from before the interlude of 10 and 11 that when the seventh trumpet sounded it would usher in the return of Christ. Well, the seventh trumpet has sounded and you're seeing things that will take place. the cry of praise that is there takes place at the return of Christ Christ, I personally am convinced, and so don't uh, that gets you kind of confused? You're like, wait a minute, we're in Revelation 11, but this is when Jesus comes back. But but we see that in Revelation. 9. Yes, and that's frequently how even the Old Testament prophecy books read with stuff even that's been fulfilled historically. You've you've got this prophecy over here, and then you t- time jump and you go back, and and if you go, well, that's still just not getting it. Well, have you ever asked a child to tell you? Uh, you know, tell you about the movie they just watched? Do they tell you every single piece of event in a perfect chronological order? No. But does that mean anything they're telling you is not true just because it's not in chronological perfect order? No. And for John, it's not that he's immature of mind and trying to figure out how to put it all. John is writing down in order the things Jesus is showing him in the order Jesus chooses to show them. So, Here's what you have, and at the end of this, you see the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. Uh, you can go down a pretty good rabbit hole with that. Re- really simple. We know from the book of Hebrews that currently in the current heaven, uh, by current heaven, I mean there, the current heaven where God and his glory resides, where those saints who die go uh, uh, separate from their bodies go in, in that heaven where, where the angels give glory to God. We, I say current heaven because that's not the final heaven. You know from Revelation 21, there'll be a new heaven and new earth for all eternity, But currently, we know in heaven, according to the book of Hebrews, there is a heavenly heavenly tabernacle because the earthly tabernacle is a copy of it. And we know that Jesus, when he shed his blood, he entered into that heavenly tabernacle and he spread his blood out on... So... All I think this is simply saying is all of a sudden, the the end of all things has come, the heavens have opened, and the ability for all to now see the Ark of the Covenant, and, and in the context here, this would be all of the redeemed, means there's no more walking. Let me put it in a different term. There's no more walking by faith. We now walk by sight with the very presence in the Holy of Holies of God, where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And then you have all this, the flashes of lightning, the peals of thunder, earthquake, and great great hailstorm. All of those are things that accompany a, a, a visible and audible manifestation of the glory of God. And that can be in times of wrath, but that can also be in good times like Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the law from the Lord when the Lord made His glory known and His glory passed. And so what you have here with the seventh trumpet is is, uh, the moment where Christ sets all things right. And you hear the cry of praise, and that cry of praise gives a wonderful description of what takes place. The nations no longer rage. You know, and just for a practical level, that's getting more and more pertinent for all of us. It means... Now, I'm assuming there probably won't be a TV to turn on, but if there's a TV at that time to turn on, it means there will be nothing about nations raging against other nations. They're done. Jesus has put them, Jesus has put them out to pasture. The dead, those who have died apart from Christ, they will be judged according to their standing. Those who are righteous in Christ, we will receive the reward of Christ and those powers that have brought absolute destruction, they will receive absolute destruction. All will be right. That's what's happening here at the end of, of chapter 11. So having said that, and I know i moved through that quick, but, but I want us, to, want us to get into chapter 12 here. Here's what it says. After he sees this, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And on his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So all of a sudden, we take a massive shift and, and, and John is now seeing in heaven a great sign, a a, a, a a mighty sign, a mighty testament. And what he sees first is he sees a, a pregnant woman. He sees a pregnant woman, and it becomes paramount as we walk through this. We've got to figure out who's the woman, who's the dragon, who's the child. Now, if we read further, it becomes pretty easy to figure out who the dragon is because the passage is going to tell us. Uh, if, if we're relatively astute and have maybe been in Sunday school for a couple years, it's pretty easy to figure out who the child is. Where more of the debate centers around is who is the woman? Uh, if, you, if you come through the Catholic Church, they will vehemently defend that the woman is Mary herself. The challenge with that is Mary doesn't fit all of those details. Uh, there are some who would say the woman is the church the challenge with that is Christ birthed the church, the church doesn't birth Christ. So it can't just be the church. Now the answer is actually fairly simple. Um, and I didn't actually check this cuz it just popped in my mind now, but let's see here. Let's see what my cross reference says. My cross reference No, 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 no. My cross reference lets me down. That's sad. Can't, can't tell you to use your cross-reference because mine let me down. Uh, here's, here's, uh, have, you, you can turn there, you can just listen, but listen to what, uh, you'll be familiar. Uh, what, did, what did Joseph do to get his brothers hacked off at him? He told his dreams. What was in those dreams? That he'd roll over them. Listen to what his dream was. Genesis 37, verse 9, Now Joseph had another dream. He told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've still had another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, "'What is this dream you have had? "'Shall I and your mother and your brothers "'come down and bow yourselves down before you "'to the ground?' "'And his brothers were jealous.'" Jealous. If anyone who had a knowledge of the Old Testament read that example of the woman, they would instantly go, the son is Jacob. The moon would be you know, Rachel or Leah, wife of Jacob. And the 12 stars would be the 12 tribes of Israel, which would make the woman Israel. The Jewish people, the people of God, especially as we're looking back to the Old Testament. Out of whom does the Messiah come? Certainly Mary birthed the Messiah, but who is Mary a part of? The Jewish people, Israel. The covenant was made with Abraham. What was in that covenant? There will be a great people, you'll have a land and you will be a blessing, a child, be a blessing to all nations. Well, how is is the people of Abraham a blessing to all nations? Because the Messiah of the world comes from the people of Abraham. Throughout the Old Testament, there are references to, uh, to Israel as a, even a woman with child. In fact, there's, there's one, and, and I didn't, uh, it was one I saw at the last minute this morning that I had not looked at Or this morning, uh, this evening. I don't know what morning, evening, night. It's all the same right now in my world. Um, but I didn't have a chance right now. But there's a passage in Isaiah that talks about uh, Israel uh, being like a pregnant woman, groaning and groaning in labor, but, but Israel itself not being able to save the world because Israel itself does not save the world. It's the Messiah that comes through Israel. That brings salvation to the world. So, here you have Israel, the, the people of God, the Jewish people, uh, pregnant with the Messiah, and, and then, and so you, you hint why you're, I said earlier an apocalyptic nativity story because look what happens next. Another sign, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns. On his head were uh, heads were seven diadems. With his tail, he swept away a third. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, drop down with me. Uh, look at verse, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That is the serpent of old. That's a reference to Genesis 3 and the serpent who who is ultimately the deceiver? Who 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 convinces Adam and Eve to fall into sin and plunge this, this world into chaos? The serpent of old, who is called the devil, which is a term that means accuser, and Satan, a term that means adversary, who deceives the whole world, and he was thrown out of Earth. So, who is this great red dragon? This is Satan. This is Satan. This is who we are we're talking about. Now, uh, this great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns on each head, and on uh, seven heads, sorry, seven heads, ten horns, and on each of its heads, seven diadems. Now, some of that imagery, at minimum, what it, is, what it is putting into your mind is a very fierce, terrifying beast you don't want to run into. It should cause some callbacks in our minds. To Daniel 7, where the fourth beast is so terrifying it's not even given a full description and equated. There are some who think that the seven heads of the great red dragon are representative of the first three beasts of Daniel 7. Leopard, remember the uh, the eagle winged lion, the eagle winged lion, the lopsided bear? Four-winged le- four, uh, the, the four-winged, four-headed uh, leopard. And then you had another, be- and you, if you add up all the different heads of the four beasts there, it adds up to seven. There's some that think that that's a, a reference uh, to what's here. Uh, you got 10 horns, which uh, horns represent power. So this, is, uh, this dragon has great power and might. Seven diadems are gonna, uh, di- and diadems here, the, the, if your Bible says diadems, there's two different words. Your Bible may say crowns. Uh it probably says diadems, it's trying to be more specific because in scripture uh, we're told to, to run for the crown. Well, the crown we're told to run for is not a diadem, it's a victor's wreath. It's 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 the gold medal, to to if we just want to make it real simple and bring it into modern-day terms. A diadem is what you think of like Her Majesty's royal crown, the king's jewels. Diadem is a, a crown of, of ruling and majesty. So the fact that he has these these crowns on his head is to give the appearance of being sovereign. But notice that his crowns have number, whereas when you move later on to when Jesus comes back and he shows himself to be king, Jesus has crowns without number. Because Satan and any one of Satan's camp are interlopers seeking to deceive. They're not the one true sovereign. But we see this dragon. Now it says he swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. Uh, There's two main ways to take that. Uh, The way that I have heard... I don't know if I've ever heard otherwise until really studying back through this, is that's a reference to before uh, mankind sinned. Uh, obviously, we know Satan had a fall. Satan. scripture alludes to the fact that Satan was a created being, is a created being. He has to be a created being. Only God is uncreated. But that Satan was of one of the highest order of the angels, that he grew proud that he grew jealous and he sought to overthrow God. He uh, Scripture alludes to the fact that Satan coaxed uh, some large number of the angelic host to join his side, and they were ultimately all defeated. All of this, and I, I, I'm, I'm not giving you the references, but I easily can just trying to, to walk through with, with you for here. There are some who think, and this is how I've heard it said, that this is referencing that Satan, whenever he fell, whenever he rebelled against God, he took a third of The angels with him. A lot of time, the the language of stars is used as a reference to angels. And that may very well be what it's stating. There, There is another way to understand it that in the past I would probably not have paid much attention to. But having just preached through the whole book of Daniel and having to work with that, I recognize that there is equal validity. And in some ways, it may fit the context a little better. And it doesn't undo what I just told you. Listen, scripture's clear Satan was an angel. He fell in in his arrogance and he took other angels with him. And that's clear, that's that's unchanged, whether it's out of this text or not. If you remember back in Daniel, there's several places, one in Daniel 8, uh, one uh, in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, where the the righteous people of God are called stars. And I I remember, as I was going back through and studying for I remember preaching through all of that. It's very clear in those passages, the stars aren't angels, they're they're righteous people of God. So it's possible And you say, well, it says he swipes them out of heaven. Well, yeah, where is is the woman currently showing up? In heaven. What are the stars on her crown representative of? The 12 tribes made up of what? People, not angels. So it's possible that when it says that this mighty, vicious dragon who is evil, who is powerful, who, is, who, who, who shows himself a level of sovereignty, but in fact is not, that with his tail he swipes down a third of the stars of heaven, that it is a reference to him persecuting the people of God, swiping them down. That's actually language very similar used to the language of Antiochus Epiphanes attacking the people of God in Daniel chapter 8 that it's re- implying previous persecution of the people of God, which we know is true all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God. Are, now, cat throwing them down, you can take that even two more ways. Throwing them down could be attacking the people of God through persecution, or it could be destroying the people of God through deception, both of which we know take place in the Old Testament. There's places where the people of God are walking in righteousness, and they are bl- brutally opposed by wicked Wicked people, and there's places where the people of God are deceived into idolatry and bring disaster upon themselves. So I'm, I'm just telling you, either of those are are valid. Uh, had I not just preached through Daniel, I'd probably tell you, All right, this is him taking on a third of the angels, having just preached through Daniel. There's, there's pretty good merit that that's what's a reference to, because look what he says, uh, opposing the people of God. It says that that he stands ready to devour the child of the woman, just listen, uh, Genesis chapter three, verse 15 tells you, God's prophes- God's talking, punishing the serpent, talking to Satan. And he says, the woman's seed, you will have enmity with the woman's seed. So maybe it's not a shocker. We see a woman in heaven pregnant with the Messiah. Uh, you'll have enmity with the woman's seed and uh, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So from the get-go, the enemy's known, someone's coming who's, who can defeat me. Now, the irony, you know, well, doesn't Satan already know that he can't defeat God? He should, but that's the thing with pride. And that's true of all of us when we're walking in pride. Pride never sees reality. Right after that passage, what what happens? I love the way that one put it. Satan moved Cain to kill Abel. He moved Pharaoh to kill Hebrew baby boys. He moved Saul to kill David. What's significant about that? Well, he said, well, David's God's anointed. Well, yeah, it is God's anointed. David also, Saul wasn't of the tribe of Judah. Where's the Messiah coming from? The tribe of Judah. Ultimately, who would God promise out of Judah that the Messiah would be in the lineage? David. Get Saul to kill David. Uh, If you remember the story of the, the wicked queen, Ataliah, who killed, or so she thought, every single one of the remaining male heirs to the throne of the line of David. And she killed all of them but one who was hidden. You go through, you go through, he moves Haman to plot genocide against the Jews. Even once Jesus get here, what's one of the first major events we know of in the life of Jesus. Herod, kill all the boys, two and under. Take them all out. That You watch all throughout history, there is a program to eliminate and do whatever can to eliminate the Messiah. And this continues all the way into uh, into this day. Satan hates the people of God. He hates the church and the anti-Semitism of this world. While some of it may be due to just the general wickedness of man's Some of it is absolutely due to the fury of Satan. You know, well, the Jews aren't following Jesus, no. But they birthed the Messiah who defeated Satan's purposes for humanity, destruction. Because Satan hates the people of God. Says the dragon was ready. But here's the problem. Not the problem. It's a problem for Satan, not a problem for us. It's our glory. He can't do it. She gives birth to a son, a male child, who's to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, a fulfillment of the pro- messianic prophecy of Psalm chapter 2. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is language we've seen in, we've seen in Daniel chapter 7, the, the ancient of days sitting on the throne. We've seen him bringing an end to the to, to the, the wickedness of the world. And, and, and who can stand before him? The son of one like a son of man riding on the cloud. We'll look again this Sunday. We've seen this picture of God in heaven, Revelation chapter 4, uh, sitting sovereign on his throne. And then there's this question of, but who's worthy to open the book? And then there's the Lamb pierced, who stands. Here we see the Messiah. Now some will say, why is all that's referenced Jesus is coming and Jesus's Jesus's ascension? You'll remember Psalm or not Psalm Philippians chapter two talks about He humbled Himself, taking on the, the form of, of, of man. He, he didn't count as equality with God a thing to be lorded over us, but He in, in humility it talks about that Jesus exalt God exalted Him and gave Him the name above every every name. There was a Evangelism uh, strategy. Some of you got from Fall uh, Harvest Festival the uh, the emoji evangelism bracelet that, that um, uh, Matt and our student ministry use while back. There was there was one that looked like this. Oh, this I forget. This is a bad black marker. Arrow coming down. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose, empty tomb, Jesus ascended, Jesus is coming back. This to this, which is what's right there, summarizes the entirety of the life and work and ministry of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on our behalf before God. So remember, this is prophetic, apocalyptic. It's not meant to be an entire discussion of the entire life. You know, why doesn't it say that Jesus was born of a virgin? Why doesn't it say that Jesus died on a cross? because it says exactly what needs to be said. That the son, the male child, the Messiah was born and he was taken up and caught into heaven, ascended. And it says the woman fled. Now listen, we'll come back to verse six here in a second. Listen to what it says in verse seven though. And let me just prepare you. Even in this passage, we're not quite sure of the chronology of how all these verses relate to each other. Now we know what I've just told you. If the woman is Israel if the the dragon is Satan and he stood ready to devour her child, and if the child was born and the child was taken up to heaven, we know all of that chronologically is past for us. That's all past. Jesus has come, born of the Jewish people to a virgin mother. He, He came, was born, he lived, he died, he rose, he's ascended, He's exalted, sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting because he's completed his work, uh, his work of redemption. Uh, Victory is won. All of that. and, and, And Satan didn't touch him, and Satan can't touch him. Satan gave it his best shot. And Jesus walked out of the grave three days later just like he said he would. So, Those things we know are past, but now look what it says. And there was war in heaven. Michael and the archangel and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the world. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So the next thing this passage takes us is John now sees there's this war in heaven. Now, here's why I say chronologically, you can make a case for several places where this war takes place. Is this war taking, is this the original war at the original fall of Satan? That would seem to fit some of what we know that Satan obviously rebelled. He led he led angels of heaven in, in rebellion against God and obviously they were put down. However, if this is talking about that rebellion, that happened prior to everything we just saw with the woman and the male child and, and you see the, the proclamation of salvation. So may, maybe this is not past. Could it be that this war in heaven, that this battle took place somewhere around the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ? Well, that that would seem to fit a little more of the context, especially the uh, you know, what came just before it, and especially the statement of salvation and the fact that Satan can no longer accuse, which uh, we'll look at that in in a minute, but Satan can no longer accuse because Jesus' blood covers sin for those in Christ. well that that wasn't true yet. Prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, I'll show you what I mean by that in Romans chapter three, when it talks about God and his foreknowledge looked over sins previously committed, knowing that they would be covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. Is it possible that this is a battle that takes place in heaven somewhere around the midpoint of the seven years of tribulation? And, and, and certainly what we see after this would, would lean more credence to that. Uh, ultimately you can, you can make a really good case uh, for, but it's gonna kind of depend on some of your bigger view of how you try to take revelation and how, how much uh, is future, how much is symbolic and what is there. Uh, personally, I, I, I think there's probably a mixture of, of both of those last two views. You'll remember in Daniel, the 77s, and how the first 49, or the first 69 sevens are real precise to the year until the Messiah shows up. But then it talks about a 70th seven that hadn't happened yet. And we use the term a prophetic gap, which is just a made up term to try to describe that it's, it is 77s. But for Daniel, in seeing those 77s, God only showed him the, the 69 sevens up until the Messiah would come and do what the Messiah can do, and then the final seven, and he didn't show him all the stuff in between, which is where you and I are living right now. It's possible a similar thing taking place taking place there in the sense of um, here's this battle. they are thrown down. I personally think probably they are thrown down. This is somewhere around Jesus' death and resurrection, specifically because of the statement of salvation. Because he says, he says now the salvation, the power, the kingdom, and of authority of our Christ have come. Well, when did those come? When did Jesus come in power? Well, he did come in power in his first, because sin was vanquished. Uh, when did salvation get accomplished? The door for salvation got accomplished on the cross, and as, he, and as he resurrected. When did the kingdom of God start coming? I know it's not here in full yet, but what did Jesus say? The kingdom of God is here. It's it's here in part, but not yet in full. Uh, What did Jesus say about authority to his disciples? Now all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples. That statement seems to be speaking of uh, what happens, the new covenant that Jesus purchased in his blood through his death and resurrection. And if it's at that moment that the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, then that would seem to say that that battle, uh, he's seeing a glimpse of a battle that took place in heaven somewhere. some would say maybe during the ministry of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a bolt of lightning, uh, somewhere around the death and resurrection. Now, here's why, and you can go, Pastor, you're losing me. Okay, great, come back for a second, because that's okay if you don't have all it figured out, because here's what's key, though. It says that the one who accuses God's people day and night has now been thrown down. And it makes you think of two different places in the Old Testament. One being Job, it says Satan came in before the court of God, and Satan said, "God, there's nobody on earth who loves you for you." And God said, well, "Have you considered my servant Job?" And he said, "Oh, he only loves you because you give him a bunch of stuff and you've made him healthy and wealthy and wise." And God says, "Okay, well, you can take all the stuff away, but don't don't harm him." What is Satan doing there? He's accusing. Now, there's another statement in Zechariah over the, the high priest Joshua, a similar thing where he is. He is accused and God provides a mean of redemption for him. Uh, Here is the reality, what it seems to be hinting at, that before God, before Jesus sheds, remember Romans chapter three says, God in his foreknowledge, that part of the whole key of Jesus being the the atoning sacrifice through whose shed blood, he washes our sin away and we are saved by his good grace and it's received through faith. And it makes the statement that, for God in his foreknowledge, he passed over sins previously committed. Meaning, if you were in alive prior to Jesus, how did your sins get covered? Well, it's because you were believing God's promise, looking forward to God sending the Messiah to cover them. Ultimately, that's what it was. Now, God gave them the festivals and the sacrifices and things to point to that, to point towards that. But ultimately, it was centered on you were looking forward, That's that's uh, and, and you were looking forward in faith. That's exactly the implication of Hebrews chapter 11. Remember, that's Paul's argument. You, no one was ever, in the Old Testament, you weren't saved by adhering to the law. You were still saved by faith, just like you are now. The law was to help keep you out of trouble and to help make it clear you needed a Savior, and here was the one coming. But Abraham was justified by faith. It says that Abraham had mentioned several others, that they were looking that they were, in Hebrews 11, it makes a statement, if they had been looking for an earthly city in which to dwell, they would have found one. But it was, they weren't looking for that. They were looking for something more, something eternal, and they were looking forward. They were looking forward to that, but that meant that practically, chronologically, their sin hadn't been covered by Jesus yet. So Satan could... The implication is stand before and make these accusations. God, you're being unjust. God, you're you're not God, God. and here's the reality. Now that Jesus has come, he's fulfilled every prophecy about what the Messiah's got to do. He's lived, he's he's lived a life we can't. He died the death we deserve. He's risen from the dead. Satan cannot stand there and and accuse anyone in Christ, whether they were saved in the old covenant days or the now in the new covenant days, no, remember what is Romans 8 said, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no accusation if you have been covered by the grace of God with the blood of Jesus Christ received through faith at some point where you responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you're born a sinner, made for God, but out of relationship with God, that Jesus lived the life you couldn't. He died the death you deserve. He rose from the grave, which means he's alive. He reigns and he he will give you salvation and wash you clean if you respond to him as Savior and Lord, when that happens, you and I are not instantly sinlessly perfect, which is where this can get confusing for us living right now. We're not instantly sinlessly perfect. We're still capable of sinning. Reality is all of us in this room still sin. And when the blood of Jesus was applied to our account, it did not just blot out everything we had done up to that point. It blots out everything we had done, everything we were doing at that moment, everything we're doing at this moment, and everything we've yet to do. It blots it all out. All of it. Because all of it has to be blotted out for you to be made right with God. So when God looks at us, no accusation can stand because no one can raise an accusation against Jesus. And he became my sin that I might become his righteousness. I'm clothed in his righteousness. If you're in Christ, you're clothed in his righteousness. So the accusation and the condemnation of the enemy, you're not good enough for God. That sin, God won't want anything to do with you over that sin. God doesn't hear your prayer. God doesn't, all of that accusation and condemnation and woe is me it's all from the pit of hell. In the sense that it's all from Satan because there is no condemnation. No, instead, Romans says we have peace with God. Now listen, can our sin take us out of fellowship? Yeah, it can take us out of fellowship, but it doesn't ever take us away from the table. And that's critical. And we'll come, I don't come back to that. I don't have time. That's critical. We'll come back. Satan cannot accuse us and make accusations. And that's why it says they overcame him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb. Jesus shed his blood. So there is therefore no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, there is conviction, and conviction doesn't ever say, you stink, you're horrible, and God hates you, so get your act together. Conviction says, I love you, you're out of line, turn back, and enjoy the goodness of my grace. It's a big difference between the two. One is filled with despair, the other is always filled with hope. The blood of Jesus is how we overcome and the way we experience it is through the word of our testimony. It's by walking in legitimate faith to believe who Jesus is and what he's done based on what he said. Especially when I don't see it and feel it. That's how you overcome the enemy. It's how actually you've already overcome the enemy. And it's how you experience overcoming the enemy every day. It's not because you and I have done anything, it's because of the blood of what he's done. We experience it as we, by the word of our testimony, walk in tried, true, tested, convicted, refined faith that further and further grows deeper and deeper, resting on who God is at what he says. And what that produces is what it says next. It says, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. It produces a loving affection and devotion of worship that says, it's not about me. It's not even about me staying alive. It's all about him. Which by the way, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you, well, here's what Jesus has done objectively for us in Christ. We better walk in it by faith knowing that even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. Well, why can't he deny us even if we're faithless? Because we're no longer standing in our own righteousness. We're standing in his. It goes back to the blood. It all goes back to the blood. How we're going to experience it, who've been washed in the blood, is by walking in faith. And when we do that, what it's going to produce is a love that's not for me, myself, and I, but is all for him, period. Period. And this is what happens. Oh man, time is time just runs short. There's so much. It says, Rejoice, O heavens. By the way, when you're saved, what does Ephesians tell you? At the moment of salvation, Jesus has seated us in the heavenly places. Well, we're not in heaven yet. No, but the position of 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 security, the position of um, i just forgive me here. This is this must be having a new baby. Of specialness, that is a horribly word. I don't, I can't think of it, but specialness, position of specialness, prestige. There's the word. Honor. You and I have already been seated there. Guess what? You know why we're seated there? Because there's no one in heaven who can accuse us to not be seated there. Rejoice, O heavens. Now, we're not there, so look what it also says: woe to the earth. The devil's come down to you. The devil can't stand in heaven and accuse anymore. Instead, he can come down and display his wrath on this world. So look what happens. Because why? He knows his time is short. When the dragon saw he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman and gave birth. Who gave birth to the male child? But two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, so she could fly into the wilderness to her birth to her place, where she was nourished for time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river from the dragon, which the dragon poured out of its mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, if that doesn't confuse the mess out of you, Choir folk, I've got four minutes to finish for you. So let me just help you understand what's being seen here. And then in whatever time I have left after that, I will wrap up kind of what's the point, how do we understand it? Dragon's thrown down to earth. He's going to persecute the woman, remember? And, the, and, and, and depending on how you take this, this is where things could shift. Depending on your view of, is there a literal seven years? Is, there, is, there, is, it, is it all symbolic? Is it a mixture of the two? I remember several weeks ago, I said, you know, there's kind of these foundational questions to how people approach Revelation. Well, the way you answer those questions is gonna kind of dictate how you process what this says. So it could be that the woman is only representative of Israel, in which case, uh, in which case, um, The enemy comes down. There's a turning of Jews to faith in Christ at the, after the midway point of the tribulation. He's gonna persecute them. God's gonna prepare a place in the wilderness for them for their protection. We've already seen that language uh, with, in chapter 11 where God tells John, measure the temple, mark the inner court, which if you're going in that way would be those believing Jews who've come to faith in Christ, the 144,000 we've seen in chapter six. It would fit with Jesus's words in Matthew 24 where he tells his Jewish disciples that after the abomination of desolation. Woe to those who are pregnant. Well, make your way out into the wilderness. So that fits there. Uh, There are some who would say that uh, the, the woman carries kind of a twofold connotation, that prior to the birth of the son, it's referring only to Israel. But after the birth of the son, it's duly referring to the Jewish people who would ultimately believe and follow Christ, as well as the Gentile believers that make up the rest of the church. In which case, you might look at this and go, Well, this persecution's not happening then at the end in that last three and a half years, but is happening both currently now in some ways and will happen in that three and a half years. There's some different ways you can take that, that there is some fairness to as far as where does it fit in the chronology, but as far as the imagery, which you need to understand, the people of God persecuted, two wings of the great eagle, that's not as crazy to figure out. Moses says of God taking his people out of of, uh, Exodus that God brought, delivered them on wings of an eagle. Many of you are familiar with the passage in Isaiah, which says he will raise us up on wings like an eagle. It means that God supernaturally delivers them to the wilderness. Now, what's the wilderness? sometimes the wilderness is a place of punishment. But sometimes, in Scripture, the wilderness is a place of intimacy, where God provides supernatural food, protecting and preserving you from danger. This is what the imagery is. There is a protection for the woman. This enrages away from the presence of the serpent. The serpent can't find her. So he he opens his mouth and pours out a, a flood of water, Now, a flood of water in Scripture can be used, there's essentially three main ways it can be used, two that are really pertinent here. It can refer to a literal army, which if it's that case, it means that the enemy raises up a literal army that's going to come after, and we've already seen language like that in Revelation about unique armies that are raised up. The other way is simply just a flood of opposition, of persecution, of challenge, of and, and, it's, and it's really just in kind of a broader symbolic way, which would certainly include armies, but could include government, uh, uh, government legislation, could include um, economic um, boycotting, could include on down the line, various ways, could include deception and tricking the people of God. The point is the serpent is, is desperate in anger to, to destroy the woman. But notice, the earth helps the woman. The earth opens its mouth to drink up the river. That's even language from the Old Testament of God's deliverance. The body of water of the Red Sea represented a barrier that was a danger to the people of Israel and God parted the waters and carried them forth. Re- the rebellion of Korah represented a danger to the people of God and God opened the earth and swallowed the rebels. All of this is language. Uh, I just, uh, I, 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 We don't have the time to go check all the, the, the references. I have them all written down, but I, I mentioned that to just say, this isn't just a random chapter. It's something John is seeing in heaven that is tied to all of the Old Testament that has come before it. And you watch as God preserves and protects his people. Now here's the statement where you can get off into the rabbit hole and where we'll end on a cliffhanger tonight. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. Well, well, he's, everything he's done, he can't find the woman. He's poured out a, a flood of opposition, of persecution to take out the woman. God has supernaturally protected her, hidden her, preserved her. And then it says, so he goes off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Well, wait a minute. If, if the woman is representative of the people of God, then who are her children? How, how does... And again, there's different ways people will handle it. Well, representative of the people of God and her children are other people of God. It could be, uh, I'll tell you what, what's probably um, apparent. It's very possible. If if, if the woman primarily throughout both sides of the chapter is referring to the people of God as in the, the Jewish people of Israel who would believe in God, then it's likely the statement is about her children. That's referring to, to all of the Gentile believers who have flowed out of the first century church. The reality is the first Christians were all Jews. Now, by and large, the Jewish people have rejected historically for thousands of years Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There's far more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. But the point of the matter is, all of us, probably if we track down who shared the gospel with who, who shared the gospel, and we found out who was the first, where was the starting point somehow we would get back to that day at Pentecost and it would go back to a Jewish believer. So it's very likely that's what it's referencing. So he can't come after, and especially if this is related towards the the, the years of the tribulation, which is where I would lean and say it is, that somehow God supernaturally protects the Jewish believers at that time and that the enemy turns his attention elsewhere to take on the Gentile church and that's true even in this day. Now, here's let me just give you a simple application with our last two minutes. One, this passage gives you a really clear picture of who our enemy is. Ephesians 6 says that our, our war, our battle is not against flesh and blood. That everything you turn on the news and see, whether it be the, the literal war in Israel going on today, whether it be a state overwhelmingly past, a constitutional amendment to enshrine in legislation the right to kill unborn children, whether it be uh, the news media responding to the Speaker of the House saying he has a biblical worldview and them saying he is just as crazy as the shooter in Maine and just as radical as Hamas. Pick what you want to. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle has always been against a supernatural enemy. And right here in this passage, you get a good picture for who he is and what he does. He's a devouring dragon. He is wicked and evil. Satan does not play nice. And one of his strategies, I think it's even what, um, Satan is not a prankster. I used to with the college students since they they would watch all the Marvel movies. Like, guys, y'all understand, Satan's not Loki. He's not the god of mischief. He's not just out to try to, cause problems. He is a rabid murderer. He's not out to cause problems. He's out to cause absolute destruction and devastation, which is why Satan doesn't care if a kid's five years old. If a kid's five years old and he can use something to insert in that child, a seed of doubt, that plants that would come out later on, he'll do it. Satan doesn't care if you're physically injured. Well, you know what? They're kind of hurting right now. I'll just, I'll just lay off. Let's, Satan is a roaring lion. In fact, the weaker you are, the younger you are, the more, the more susceptible you are. Where does a lion attack that, there? Understand he is wicked without cause. He desires destruction in every way. He is the accuser of the brethren. He can't accuse us in heaven, but he can shout condemnation to us here with despair. How many of us live in despair every day in our relationship with Christ because we really don't get what it means that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and we're not experiencing it through the word of our testimony. He's the deceiver of the world. He's a liar in everything. There's nothing that comes out of his mouth that is true. Now he may say something that has truth in it, but it's always a lie. He's an adversary of God's people. He wants us to be loveless. He wants us to be dead. He wants us to be adulterers. He wants us to be useless. And I'm using that imagery from the seven churches. We see the nature and reality of Satan. We also see the certainty of his defeat. He wants to devour the child of the woman. Fail. And I love this statement. Look back with me in in verse 8. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. Literally, they were not and are not able so if at first you get this picture of, man, what a battle in heaven it must have been. Michael and the angels and Satan. and It, it wasn't a battle. They're not strong enough. They got thrown out. Jesus' victory is sure. It is complete. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, and he's coming back to judge the dead, to reward the righteous, and to destroy the destroyers of the earth. And no one will wiggle out. Satan is powerful and he is wicked and he is a true adversary for us. He is dog poop to Jesus. We need to be certain of his defeat and we need to experience the victory of Christ. How do we do that? I've alluded to it already and kind of went there earlier. By the blood of the lamb. We need to understand the importance of Jesus' sacrifice for us daily. By the way, do you realize that's what the book of Romans is? There is not a single command given in Romans until halfway through chapter 6. And the first command is to reckon yourselves, to rest the eyes of your faith and the meditations of your heart on all that Jesus has accomplished for you by the blood of the Lamb. As we understand that, we, we cling to it in faith by the word of their testimony. And then as that happens... We allow the importance of, or we, we, we realize the importance and are transformed loving Him firstly and worshiping Him. Oh my goodness, we're past time. I, I, I say this is quickly becoming my favorite chapter, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, because so much of where we've been for the last year is tethered into this chapter. And the Christian life is extremely hard at times. But it is not complicated. Many of us walk in despair and condemnation before Jesus when there's no reason to. And listen, I I am as guilty of that as anybody because I, I battle daily with severe perfectionism. So I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm one of the worst offenders. So it means I have to be better about really understanding what Jesus did on my behalf and spending more time thinking about what he did on my behalf than how well I think I've measured up to what my perfect standard for him is. It means we've got to walk in it by faith. Listen, Satan's aim is to defeat this church. Let's just make it personal. and we must never align ourselves with His purposes. And I got plenty of examples of ways we can without even realizing it. But suffice for time, we must never align ourselves with His purposes. And as we understand what He's done, the blood of the Lamb, and we grow and cling to it by the word of their testimony, tried and true faith, He will transform us and we will not love even our own lives. Man, that's the kind of believer we must be. That's the kind of church we must be. But we won't be there as a church if we're not there as individuals. So let me stop there. I love you, church family. I'm so very grateful for you, for your prayer and love for my family. And um, I don't know what the days ahead hold. What I do know is... We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and may we never hold our lives so dear, even in the face of death. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Lord, and I do just pray that whatever transformation you have to bring in any of our lives, you say, We are your aroma to those who are redeemed and to those who are perishing. Lord, may we be the strongest smelling aroma that you would delight to make us. Father, may we be believers through whom it's apparent there is, a, there is a all-consuming love for you, the foundations of which are in who you are and what you've done, the blood of the Lamb, which we have received by your grace through faith and in which we now must walk daily in and by faith the word of our testimony. God, every one of us feels the weight of a world where it seems like every day the enemy wins. But your word tells us, Lord, not that he loses, but that he's already lost. So, Father, find us overcomers by your grace for your glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.